it's something like I mean, it should have cost a million bucks, and yeah. we pulled it off for a quarter of that. But uh, you know, a, a lot of friends helping out. And I I was blessed with an amazing cast, an amazing crew. Who did we have? Well, along with my son Bodie Elfman. And it wasn't just nepotism. If you look him up on IMDb, he's got a hundred yeah, yeah, credits. Yeah. It was a little uh, bit yeah, nepotism. Yeah, he's a series regular all the time. And Rebecca <laughs> I know Forsyth. You, I know you like to keep it in the family. But but we also had um, French Stewart from Third Rock on the Sun. George went from Cheers. Uh, Vern Troyer, who I missed dearly, his last film, played the emperor of the clown universe, Out to Get Earth. Nick Novicki from Boardwalk Empire. You know, so, so we had like a great cast. Do you have to get some people to do some favors for you? or how Are do you... you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I, I pay them back with barbecues up on my deck. But no, the whole thing was favors. It sounds fun. I, I've got to say, it's, it's a laugh a minute film. What I did is it, it's like an insane, wacky whatever. But underneath, there's a solid story structure. There's a MacGuffin. Boy gets girl. Boy loses girl. Boy gets girl. It, you know, you can follow it. What's the turnaround time on something like that from from sitting down a at year. the typewriter? A year. Beginning yeah, yeah, to I end? wrote it, it. When you walk out, do you see a little Garrett on the rooftop? I didn't. That, that's my writing Garrett. One year from start to end? It's about what it takes to do a, an independent. Fee. I mean, right now, I've got all these rocket ship shots to do, but we can't. We're pulling favors to get them done. You know, so we can't say, like, I want it yesterday. Yeah. It was like, please, please. <laughs> They talk about how the barrier of entry for creating you know, any sort of creative content at this point is, is lower. You know, obviously there's all these SoundCloud musicians, you know, you can just record something into your computer and put it out into the world. Do you find the technology has made the process of filmmaking easier on your end? Well, well the biggest change is going digital as opposed to 35 millimeter film. And in, unless someone's going to give me $200 million and I don't see them knocking on the door this week, you can do anything digitally and make it look as good and you avoid all these steps. It actually allowed me to work with two cameras. Uh, we, we had these red epics. So I got twice as much footage as I would normally get. What percentage of your life at this point is devoted to filmmaking? Well, it's, it's kind of half and half at the moment because, you know, I'm in and out of the editing room. Yeah. But I'm putting up a live theater production in a week and a half. You were telling me your schedule before and I, I couldn't believe yeah, how yeah, many yeah, things you're it's, doing. It's another very poignant play called Dead Man's Boner. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we've put a live music orchestra together with uh, Ego Plum, Ernesto Guerrero called Mambo Diabolico Ensemble. But th this is the, the story, again, very poignant about an, about an inbred family dealing with interdimensional conflicts like the dimensions coming apart. Now, how does something like that come together? I mean, I, I tend to think of you as being a filmmaker, but you've done plenty of No, I, I, well. I came from theater. Yeah, yeah, I came from theater. And then I, I, I had a, a print magazine and a, a website and a second website for five, six years. I've, I've actually produced 300 videos. Yeah, they're not online at the moment. Uh, you can go to YouTube and see little clips of them. But that was, uh, I wanted my own media empire. How's that working out? Was See that apartment building next uh -huh. door? It cost me that one. But I still own that one okay. to pay for the stakes. <laughs> so property. If you've got if you've got one piece of advice for uh, for surviving in Los Angeles as a creative, hang on to property. Well, I don't know. I mean, Forbidden Zone, my first film, cost me my house. I ain't complaining. I mean, I'm. A, I... <laughs> Have you ever made money doing something creative? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
<laughs> not not as much as like fixing it up an old apartment building. But I, I I'm very confident about hipsters gangsters because it's it's probably the most commercial thing I've ever written, and the funniest. And I was somehow blessed with the right crew and the right cast, and they gave it. Do you feel like there's a good avenue at this point for for distributing something like that? Obviously, again, in the way that um, the barrier of entry is lowered for content creation, it's also lowered for actually distributing it out into the world. And it sounds like you're you're confident that this is going to get you know a pretty sizable audience of interest. Well, actually, we had a a, a, a very reputable mid sized sales company, Lightning Entertainment. Mm. Uh, is picked up the film and and they are helping us with our completion money and they're they're making sales right now. It, it, it's uh, you know with clips and and whatever. So so it's so it's it's worked out. Where are you at with the Forbidden Zone two? Again, I know this has been quite the labor well, of love it, for you. It, it's basically it's get hipsters out. Yeah. According to the producers, the same producers, and we'll close Forbidden Zone two. They said. I mean, that's that's really strange. Marching order. They told you that they needed another film in the interim. Well, they said, like, what can we do cheaper and quicker? Mm. Forbidden Zone 2 is a couple million bucks. Yeah. And th- this one should have cost a million, but we just got it done for cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, but just the way it works, it's so now people or companies are talking to us about Forbidden Zone 2, where they weren't talking to us before. You think some of your friends in Hollywood see your name on the phone, <laughs> see you're calling and are just like, oh, no, <laughs> Richard wants to do another movie. Quite the contrary. No. <laughs> They're hoping it's an invitation to yeah. one of my wild parties and fabulous barbecues. I, I love that quote of Anthony Bourdain uh, on your Facebook yeah. page, by the way. Although I'm married to a vegetarian, but she's not militant. Yeah. Our, our daughter eats meat. I, I do regular dinners. And yeah. I, I, I'm an outdoor cook. I call myself a, a refined Neanderthal because I'll, I'll grill anything that grows, walks, swims, yep. or flies. We, aside from my wife, we, we have friends that are vegetarians and vegans, and I, I respect whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I'll accommodate whomever. How long have you been working on this sequel to Forbidden Zone? Five years. Five years. So was it clear early on after the first movie came out that it necessitated a sequel? No, quite the contrary. Uh, the first thing came and went uh, and disappeared. I lost all rights to it. And there were problems with the music clearances. So it went off the air and it just disappeared. And then about 10, 12 years ago, I put my first site up. And then I got tens of thousands of emails from all hmm. over the world of people that had seen, I guess, bootleg copies. And then uh, a couple of years ago, when I did a, a crowdfunder to get the development money for Forbidden Zone 2... Uh, we raised it right away, and that allowed me to do the script, hire an art director, you know, do mock-ups, have some music composed. And we actually had a company. It was uh, it cost me a year, though. This happens all the time in Hollywood that, you know, you're, you're greenlit, you've got a film, it's all working. And then they're having some trouble with their other film, the date gets pushed back, and then the guy at the company leaves and go to some other company, and then <laughs> they stop returning calls after a year. So, you know, we went through one of those. It sounds like in a strange way, it was the cult success, the recent interest in the film was almost helped by the fact that it has been difficult to to access. I mean, in, in a time where everything is online all the time, is, is constantly accessible, this idea that there's this cult film that you can still only get through boot legs is almost an appeal in and of itself. I suppose so, although not meaning to brag. I have a philosophy about music, and I get all my visual ideas for music. There's serviceable music, and then what I call there's memorable music. Chicago's a great example of serviceable music, and I I loved the stage production. I, I, I 
salivated over the film. It was just so beautiful. But by the time you get to the car, you forget the music, you know, other than like all that jazz or something like that. The, They're the, just the cliches of the song. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you, you, you go to uh, West Side Story, Fiddler on the Roof, mm. Wizard of Oz. These are timeless pieces of music. And what I had in Forbidden Zone is I had timeless music. I, I go through thousands of things, kind of like an example would be, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where yeah. they, they Here were gems hidden in plain sight, or Buena Vista Social Club. What I used to do with before the band Oingo Boingo was a musical theatrical troupe called the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, and we'd present to audiences things great that they no longer could hear live. Uh, Josephine Baker, Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington. But uh, so Forbidden Zone had all these great classics. And then I, I lucked out that uh, my little brother, no musical training, turned out to be Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> I've got timeless music in Forbidden Zone. Forbidden Zone 2 is also going to have timeless music. And, and so that carries it. it. You know, cult, whatever. It's people will always enjoy it. I think that carries it. But I, I also think the aesthetics are important from the standpoint of... Y you mean... Uh, obscenity and absurdity well but also <laughs> sure yeah, i guess that never hurts the visuals are so striking in, in the movie that it, it's one of those movies where if you had seen 20 years ago and completely forgotten about some of it's going to stay with you it's a musical film but it's also such a visual film you know based on again these sort of like old black and white movies and cartoons that i suspect that there's this feeling that kind of lingers from the movie well i'll tell you a secret life can be absurd <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here and, first and richard elfman films have a high degree of absurdity yeah. i think part of that also stems from the fact that you know that it, it's so unlike everything else uh. <laughs> <laughs> i mean that as a compliment i want you to know yeah 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 i don't i mean i'm, I'm inspired by things but you know i, I have my own vision it, yeah. it's for some people and for other people it isn't you had a theater training you're doing the musical troupe around the same time what what had to come together to make you decide to sit down and make your own film Okay, so I had this group, Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, kind of a musical theatrical troupe. And my rule at the time was nothing contemporary. It either had to be completely original, insane Danny Elfman, or classics <laughs> from the past. And then, you know, here's this 12, 14-piece group, but it was unwieldy, you know, to tour, to do anything. And then life kind of changed it to an eight-person rock group, which was Oingo Boingo. So I wanted to preserve on film essentially what I'd been doing on stage. So the, the film was really my stage show, you know, that I wanted to preserve. That is one of the things about theater. It is kind of ethereal. You, you spend all this time working on something, and it's limited to the people who are in the room seeing it, assume, assuming that, you know, that production... Oh, yeah, you've got moments where it's just perfect, but you know it's going to fade in their minds. Yeah. And so something about a film is you get hit by a truck, and you can know that people could watch it 90 years later. Clearly, you enjoy the experience of making a film, because that really... You've devoted a lot of your, your time to that over the past several decades. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I mean, I, I've done a few that were very rough conditions, were not my own script or as a hired gun that weren't as fun. All these mediums you're, you're working in, what is the sort of, what's the most purely pleasurable artistic pursuit that you have? Well, it's directing material that I've written. As opposed, Regardless to, being, of whether as it's opposed to being a hired gun, yeah, you know, then I get the full artistic satisfaction. Doesn't matter whether it's a whether it's a film or, or theater production. Yeah, yeah, we're putting a 
a Dead Man's Boner is going up. I have an alternate title called Suddenly Last Dimension that we had to do just, you know, for some ads and stuff like that. But it's a little theater in North Hollywood. I'm doing this with Force of Nature Productions. There'll be some other plays. And my wife, Anastasia, does avant-garde burlesque that we'll be doing to original music. Is that rewarding when you, when you do something for that short a period of time when you know that this is only going to exist for, you know, a, a few shows? It was, it was more like, I, I don't know, maybe I had too many glasses of whiskey and my third cigar up in my little riding garret and bang, there was my one act. You know, and, and so my, my wife Anastasia is in this marvelous theater company, Force of Nature. You know, I said, hey, hey, do you want to put my one act up? And they said, Sure. And then we created a music group to play live with it, which is fantastic. I'll show you a little bit after our podcast. You feel that you're in a position now where you can, anything that you write, you're going to be able to ultimately find a, a home for? Yeah, after years of scraping and begging <laughs> and stealing. But I mean, it seems like a pretty good arrangement of going up there, having a few glasses of whiskey, writing something and knowing that, you know, somewhere at some point, it's going to see the light of day. I've got 300 videos that I produce that aren't online right now. Yeah. So you never know. Yeah. How do you keep going after a big disappointment, after really pouring yourself into something and it just not getting out there, not reaching people? Um, how do you sit down the next day and work on the next thing? I, I've always had a pretty, I, I guess, cup half full attitude. Yeah. I, I mean, I've got a wonderful family, great friends. I love to entertain, you know, and uh, I, I just got a, a film in the can with a, a dream cast and a dream crew. And it looks like that'll allow us to do two, three more. And that'll allow us to do more if I don't fuck up and go crazy, which is, which is always possible. Do you feel like you're always walking that line? <laughs> I mean, go crazy, you know, maybe <laughs> given what you do, I, that could, depends on which way you go crazy. It could no, I, potentially I, I, be I've always been a controlled crazy where I could like, like do business at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were going to say you're a control freak, which I thought would be kind of interesting. I mean, do you, do you tend to micromanage these things? It's very funny with a, particularly with digital film, and I yeah. can't do this with every actor, but I had some great comics, including Steve G, Rebecca Forsyth, Angeline oh. Rose Troy, along with French Stewart, George yeah. Went. Nick Novicki. I get it the way it was in the script. So I had it. And I go, okay, kids, even to George Went, kids, do anything the fuck you want. And sometimes it was junk and sometimes it was much better than yeah. anything I wrote. Yeah. And so that that's the beauty of, of, of digital, you know, that I'm, I'm not worried about counting to be developed in the lab and stuff like that. So I got a lot of improv after I got it the way it was written in the script, if that makes sense. I also suspect that there has to be a certain level of kind of understanding that given budgetary constraints that you have when making these movies, that it's not, it's not going to look exactly like it was in your brain when producing the film. Well, that's the whole struggle of the artist, is taking something in the mind and then putting it into the yeah. physical universe that other people can look at. And to what degree it's altered. And also film is a collaborative medium in with the director of photography. You know, I have an editor that gives you know, David Avalone is brilliant. He gives me just the right amount of fight to stop me from shooting myself in the foot. <laughs> the good kind of fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I, I like that. Have you gotten better about um, collaborating with people in the early days when you first started doing this? Were you a little bit more of a control freak? I am and I am not. If I were to describe directing, half of it is suppressing the creativity of others and half <laughs> of it is encouraging it. I once directed Rod Steiger in a vampire movie and he was this frumpy old German professor 
Von Helsing, but he wanted to dress like a gunslinger with a cowboy hat. You know, so I had to like, Rod, you can't do it. What do you mean? But this is perfect. You know, like, uh, you know, Rod, you can't do it. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> you, you know, and then, and then everybody's suggesting things and okay, that's interesting, but let's do it like in the script. But then on the other hand, you, you know, actors are constantly surprising me with stuff in their performance. And the DP suggests shots that I didn't think of. Do you find that, that your approach to that has, has changed over the years now that you've been doing this for a while with regards to how much control you're willing to give up? No. No? No. <laughs> exactly the same as you were yeah, day one? Yeah, no. yeah. I do think it's funny when, you, when you know, the first example you come up with when talking about telling an actor no is Rod Steiger. <laughs> Oliver Stone was originally producing a script by Matthew Bright, who wrote Freeway. And for some reason, I was given two Matthew Bright scripts to direct. Some other producers pushed Stone off the production, which was stupid. But anyway, so I had like 18 days to shoot this film, and it wasn't like I had like months and months and yeah. months. So Steiger comes there, it's his first day on the set, and I go, okay, like uh, this is the staging. You know, we're going to start here and then go here and then end the scene here. And he goes, well, I, I haven't blocked it out that way. And I said, well, Mr. Steiger, we had to pre-light it last night. And he goes, pre-light it? Pre-light it? And then he starts screaming at me, Eli Kazan never treated actors this way. What the fuck do you know, kid? What the fuck do you know? And, and so I, 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 I rolled. The crew was terrified. And instead of walking from A to B, we lost a half an hour and he bananaed around a little bit from A to B. So then I kind of like got my nerve together. I called his agent. I said, that's it. I can't work like this. And so uh, from that point on, I made him do it exactly as I wanted it. And he would deliver brilliant performances and then sometimes go like these big like tirades, whatever. But then he'd call me at three in the morning crying, was I believable? Yes, Mr. Steiger, you were believable. <laughs> and I've got to say, I, I had some younger actors that he would spend hours like going over lines and stuff like that. And he was great to work with, yeah. but like twice a week he'd have a fit. And it wasn't just a fit. It was like a stentorian trumpet. You know, if I had more hair, it was like blowback. You know, and it's uh, I, I'm an ex-boxer. So, yeah. you know, okay, okay, you know, let him go. And then, okay, Mr. Steiger, take your mark, please. Action. You know, and it, it won the respect of the crew because I was the only one that stood up to him. <laughs> it sounds like you were a part of some studio system at that point that they, that they were handing you scripts to direct. No, no, I, I've done some ABC television, but not, uh, and these these were independent films, these two Matthew Bright scripts that I did. The ABC thing just felt like a, a job at the time? A friend of mine, Adam Rivkin, mm. who's just, God, what has he just done? Something with Burt Reynolds, something with Penn and Teller, I don't know what. He got a series with ABC comedy horror, so he hired film directors. So I was like, the main director there. This does not seem to be the case now, and it certainly didn't seem to be the, the case early on, but where you were really just sort of taking jobs to survive? No. How have you managed to do what you've done for so long? Every five, ten years, investors come to me and say, like, go do some real estate, and I find buildings, and I kind of fix them up, and I'm the co-owner. This one I own completely myself. This is a completely rehabilitating you know, housing projects and holding them for five years and managing them. I dropped out of college after a semester and I opened two clothing stores, one adjacent UC Berkeley, one adjacent UC Santa Barbara. So I didn't go to college, but I clothed those who did. 
it was an education of sorts. Yeah, I mean, and then in the evenings I did, I, I was in a group in San Francisco called the Cockettes. Uh, <laughs> C-O-C-K. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I got that. And uh, I was in a Afro... I, I'm a Latin percussionist, which was my original thing. So I was in an Afro-Cuban group called the Quanditos. I'm going to rewind a little bit. There's a lot of information to process there. You know, you were selling clothing, you were doing percussion. Did you have a clear idea of what you wanted to do? What you thought you, you know, your chief creative pursuit was? Were you really... Was everything you were working on really working toward a certain end? I had two big shifts. The first one was it was I was 15 and a half years old and ran into a, some party in Watts and it was this uh, beautiful black Cuban lady who played me music from Cuba by Celia Cruz, a homenaje a los santos, started in Spanish and went into Yorban from West Africa and that was an epiphany so that was my whole thing was Afro percussion. Red-haired Jewish boy from L.A., well, I, I well, first of all, I, I was born on 103rd Street in Watts, and then we moved up to Crenshaw. Uh, so I, I, I've always been, I grew up with the African-American yeah. community. I, I didn't, I, I, I can't tell you stuff. Yeah, but, but okay, but any, anyway, in a nutshell, so it was all music. Yeah. And then when I was in the Bay Area and I saw the Coquettes perform and they would do send-ups, it was a largely transvestite troupe, uh, send-ups of old musicals and Max Fleischer cartoons and then there were some uh, art theaters there and i started looking at french cinema and then i realized i wanted to do film and theater it sounds like you had a few almost artistic epiphanies or a few moments where you heard something for the first time i mean i i talk about this a lot i i can probably count on one hand the moments where i felt like i made a decision that really impacted the rest of my life you know that sort of like cinematic moment but the, the thing you see in movies your life really being at a crossroads and it sounds like there's a few moments you can really point to where you encounter this thing for the first time and this felt like the thing that maybe you wanted to spend your life doing okay i don't want to get mystical on you no uh, please. I, I don't know if there's such a thing as past lives although i have a, a younger brother danny elfman that not only didn't study music the kid wasn't into music there was no record collection never went to concerts nothing and then we get him a guitar he's like 15 16 and then a month later he could pick out a django reinhardt solo okay then we get him a violin a month later it's stefan Gapali. he could do the second <laughs> Step and Grappelli <laughs> accompaniment. And for me, it was like that with percussion that I was just able to play. Like I'd been there before and I, I, I've always been like the only white guy yeah. in these all black groups. You know, but like, where did I get it? I think I was like 20 years old, 21. And I saw this French film, Les Enfants de Paradis, The Children of Paradise. It was an amazing film about the French theater scene in the 1830s. And it's like a three-hour film. It's a classic. And I walked out of the theater, turned a circle, and walked back and saw it again. Then, it's just one of these things. The Coquettes were supposed to go to a festival of a new theater in uh, Toronto. And then they couldn't make... It was too unwieldy a group. They just couldn't get it together to get there. By chance, my father got sick in northern Canada. And I had to go up and sort it out. And then I stopped back in Toronto to see this festival of a new theater. And I ran into this scruffy, almost a street group from Paris. Uh, this guy, Jerome Savary and the, the Grand Magic Circus. And some, I'm talking to them. And boy, they sure wish they had a percussionist. I had my drums flown in. And I said, but give me three minutes in the show. So I played percussion with their musical stuff. And they gave me three minutes to stage where I did this kind of surrealistic thing 
from the Coquettes where I was in a dress and stabbed the piano player to Eric Satie music. Okay, so I go back to California with my clothing stores. They go back to Paris. Peter Brook, the legendary director from the Royal Shakespeare Company, picked them up and gave them a big budget in an 800-seat theater. They invited me to Paris. So six months after seeing that film... I was in a French theater company. We sold out 800 seats for a year, uh, and Jerome Savary, under the mentorship of Peter Brook, went on to become the director of the French National Theater. Danny graduated high school, shows up in Paris with his violin. Our violinist was from the Paris Opera. Jerome liked to improvise a bit, and this guy from the opera could not go off score. Danny could follow anything, so Danny got the gig, and that was his first professional thing, was playing with me in Paris. So what does all this mean? What what's what's the what's the moral here? I mean, I don't know. I lost track of the question. You said earlier, I I I don't want to get I don't want to get mystical. Oh oh no no, it's it's just Danny plays like a dozen instruments, and I play serious Afro percussion. And it was something that I didn't study. It just almost came to me like lightning hit me when I went to Paris. I I had this overwhelming feeling that I'd been there before. You know, but who knows? You know, maybe maybe it was the booze. You felt this sense that, you know, perhaps like in a past life that, that you had... Been... It was an overwhelming feeling. First, when I heard that music go from Spanish to Yorban, was that overwhelming feeling. And then I could suddenly play the music. And then when I went to Paris, was an overwhelming feeling that I'd been there before. Is this something that's reoccurred in, in your life, or is it really just that particular moment? Those were the big ones. Those were the big ones. When you get that feeling, the sense that it's almost fate... That, that you're there. Oh, 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 like when I took up formal English writing, I had the strong sense that I hadn't done that before. <laughs> I get that feeling a lot. I get that feeling just about every day of my life. When you have that moment, when it really does feel like something divine intervention or, or, or that you're a part of something larger, how do you how do you harness that? Well, I was I was in the theater group for two years, married the leading lady, have a French son who I... <laughs> lives in LA, works with me. And then after two years, I came, I I wanted to start my own group. And that's how I started the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. Danny went from the theater group, spent a year in Africa. Talk about balls with no money. He went from the West Coast to the East Coast, playing with indigenous tribes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So he came, I got him to be my musical director for the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. I went off into other things after a certain point, and he had the rock band Oingo Boingo. When you've done so many things in, in the lead up to that, I mean, it sounds like in a sense you lived a lot of lives prior to that. Hell, I'm older than Lestat. <laughs> <laughs> you should see my picture in the basement aging away. How do you know you're doing the right thing? How the fuck does anyone know if they're doing I don't the know. right I thing? Mean, I mean, it seems like <laughs> I mean, those, those, those moments like... where you were like, boom, Afro-Cuban music, you know, boom, like all these all these things. Oh, okay, well, well, at the Belfry Theater with Force of Nature Production, yeah. I'll be playing with the Mambo Diabolico okay. Ensemble. I'll be playing Afro-Cuban music along with, there's this great composer who works with my brother. His name's Ego Plum. His real name is uh, Ernesto Guerrero. But he does, uh, he, he's a monster composer. And so <laughs> I'm still playing the music. As a matter of fact, I was down in Crenshaw a few weeks ago backing up a singer doing an Ella Fitzgerald retrospective, you know, with with jazz musicians and stuff. Are you happy with the level that you're at with regards to the... No, I wish I had tens of millions yeah. of dollars. I could just do anything the fuck I wanted. But no, it's, it's, a, it's still a struggle. It's still a fight. But I'm getting enough done 
that, that I'm happy and feel blessed. I mean, I suspect like given given the people that you know and given how long you've been doing it and the fact that you did direct shows for ABC that if you really wanted to be a part of the studio system, you have the skill set to do it, certainly. Well, here, here was my biggest connection to the studio system. Okay, so I, I, I put on like huge parties and events. And so this one, I have a cousin who's a big wig in the business. And so we had all the big wigs there. And I had this full moon. We're drunk out of our minds. I also play Afro-Brazilian music. I play with a couple uh, samba groups. This is like percussion samba, not bossa nova, you know, like the heavy carnival street stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got this amazing group. And we're at my cousin's mansion. The guy that the player was based on in real life, who is the head of a studio, the most powerful man in Hollywood, walks by my musicians and he loudly says in earshot, God, why couldn't they get some real music? And these are the sweetest guys. And it it was just like a knife in their gut. It was a black tie party. So I picked the fuck up and I took him to the pool. And like Dracula, like he's putting me under the ether, like I'll never work again. He's dying of permerculocus. It'll kill him. He didn't want to go in the pool. I threw him in the pool in his tuxedo. Okay. No one could fucking believe it. This was a man who was feared, but he was hated. If you could see him struggle out of the pool in his tuxedo. And I went back to the Brazilian musicians and apologized for his boorish behavior. This is an explanation of why you're not a part of the studio system. (laughs) Maybe. Okay, well, let me ask you this, Richard. Was this an isolated incident, or do you feel like this is a symptom of a larger issue with authority that you might have? Well, except for the two art-related felonies, but we're way past the statute, so I can tell you about them. I'm also a writer. Uh, I've done columns for years. I've actually done a column for our mutual friend, Josh. Josh, I've written, and it's interesting how you just quoted Anthony Bourdain, but a lot of my writing has been food, wine, and travel. Okay, so I'm writing for these West Side yuppie publications. <laughs> and uh, I, I did a particularly lot of research on this article going from restaurant bars down the coast. So I turned the article in, the publisher, who's a friend and I was doing some other work with, went to some meditation conference, comes back with some lady editor. And he said, oh, do you mind if she edits your piece? And I tell her, well, edit will make me seem the better writer. What has she edited before? Well, she has a natural sense of editing. Well, what has she done before? She hadn't edited anything. So she rewrote my first paragraph. I said, don't print it. Okay, so I'm just pissed off. Yeah. I bump into him a week later, and then he goes on, like, Tom, what, what, what's the deal? And he's, he had found the light now, and everything about me was disgusting. Eating meat, liquor, cigars, it's just this horrible lifestyle, and I'm terrible. And I couldn't sleep all night. And then I woke up in the morning, and I rewrote the article a little bit saltier. Okay, so then I had it printed on paper. It was 11 by 17 magazine, but incrementally smaller. And then I broke into their warehouse at midnight with a crew in a moving van and a photographer from the LA Weekly. You weren't kidding about the crime part of this. And I took 50,000 copies of the magazine. This filled a moving van. And I left a little note on the wall that the magazine had been requisitioned by the LA Restaurant Critics Guerrilla Underground. Okay, so I guess the next day they just figured it it went to the distributor. It, it, yeah. it was just too big a thing. Oh, well, I guess Joe picked it up, you know, whatever. So anyway, when the shit hit the fan... <laughs> Oh, I had it distributed to newsstands. Had it distributed. Yeah, I, I had some insiders that I paid off uh, the staff. Okay. So then he charged, I, I was charged with felony grand theft. 
So I got a temporary restraining order on his t- cable show that had a bunch of my material that I hadn't signed releases, and he was forced to drop the charges. The LA Weekly was then given permission. I, I had the whole crime photographed, and they called it Grand Theft Ardo. His circulation went through the roof, and two months later, he fired that editor. Three months later, I was back writing for him. We're friends to this day. The other was just simply, simply felony extortion to get a, a crew paid from some asshole rich producer, but that I won't get into that one. One of those three things turned out pretty well for you in the grand scheme. But when you look back at these these moments where you're sort of, again, kind of at a crossroads where you, know, you, you could have stayed in the system, you could have towed the line, but you made this decision to very much go in the other direction. Do you ever have a sense of regret that you didn't continue down that path? I don't know. It's just I, I'm happy where I'm at right now. I, I, I've got like a great family. I've got a, a theater piece going You'd like up. a little more money. I, I, I've got a, I've got a film coming out. Yeah. Uh, even though I lost the one building with my startup, I still own this one that I could put food on the table yeah. and throw barbecues only with 15 dollar wines instead of hundred dollar yeah. wines you know i'm not complaining there you go that was an absolutely delightful conversation with richard elfman his upcoming film is called hipsters gangsters aliens and geeks that's coming out this year thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that and hosting me at his place in hollywood thanks to a friend of the show josh frulinger for helping to set up that conversation thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program if you do like the show there are a number of ways to support us you can rate and review us on itunes or google podcasts or if you happen to get your podcasts like us on facebook follow us on tumblr that's rlcast.tumblr.com that is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. I think that's about it for this week, so stick around because we are going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.